Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And our text this morning will be verses 25 to 28. We are finishing off the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I went on the website and I counted. And we are on Sermon 29. 29 in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We were going so fast that we had to slow down in chapter 5. And so we took smaller chunks. But we are now going to finish up this book. And again, we said the word for this book is model. Paul wants this church to be a model. He wanted them to to follow his model, for them to be a model for others to follow. And he gives them instructions so that they will continue to grow in their faith, to fill in what's lacking, whether it's knowledge or whether it's actually obedience. And so as he's coming to the end of this book then, He will give us really his last statement to the church, his last concerns, and what he would want them to remember as he finishes off his letter. Let's read the word of God beginning in verse 25. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. That's the ending of God's words this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I know I need it, and we need to, again, ask the Lord to teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for its richness. We recognize that every word is inspired. Every word is written as you have intended it to be written. Each one is portraying truth that you want us to grasp. And so this morning, even as we really uh, finish this book and and as Paul is signing off, we know that there are truths here for us that we must understand and we must implement in order to be pleasing to you. And so I pray again that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning that we might know you more, that we might be conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we might live with joy, I pray. In your name, amen. Well, Paul is really coming to the end of a section that he began in, in chapter 5, verse 12. And he's really been talking about Christian conduct and specifically about how the church is to behave. And again, we understand that as the church behaves, so the individual must behave. And so he has been going through these these. Uh, topics on how the church is to behave and again we we said he is he started this book with the idea of of giving thanks for them and and saying you remember how god worked among you and how we worked among you and remember how we love you don't think we've abandoned you and then as he carries on, he says, now after all of those greetings and after all the prayers for you and after desiring for you to recognize that we care for your souls, he says, now I'm going to give you instructions because I can't be with you and I'm going to fill in what is lacking in your faith. And so he began to give them instructions and he says, I, here's your concern for those who have died. Let me inform you about that so that you don't grieve as those without hope. He says, here's the day of the Lord. Here's what you need to know about there. This is what I need to remind you about it. You don't have to worry about the day of the Lord. God's judgment isn't coming upon you. 
And then he went into Christian conduct. And he, and he explained how they were to live. And then finally, as he gets into chapter 5, as he begins this end, he has instructions really to the church and how they are to behave. And so now as Paul ends this letter, and after he has prayed for them, he kind of gives this postscript and it's this kind of sign-off. And generally, when we get to these parts of our Bible, we're already checked out, right? We've, we've got the meat. We got the meat already. And who cares what he really, ha- you know, what he has to say to them at the end. It's kind of that personal little, I love you, grace to you, see you later. And so there's a tendency for us to look at these sections and say, there's nothing there for us. But as, as we discussed, Every word of the, of the word of God is profitable. It is written for a purpose. And so we need to make sure that we don't just breeze past it, thinking that there's nothing here for me, nothing to see. We must always understand that there is theology that is being placed for us here. And as Paul ends this, he's really going to give us his concerns. Remember, he's been under this umbrella of speaking to, to the church He's been under this theme of growing a healthy flock. In other words, how is the church to behave? How is it to grow? And now as he ends, he's going to give us really some more instructions in that. In other words, heres I want to remind you what you need to do in order to be a healthy flock. I'm going to remind you what you need to do. Here are some elements and responsibilities for you to perform. Now, it's interesting because maybe at the end of verse 24, he says, faithful is he who calls you and he will bring it to pass. And Paul has been speaking about their sanctification and recognizing that God is the one who sanctifies. In other words, we can can do activities and we can place ourselves in, in the place for the Spirit to work on us, but it is actually the Holy Spirit that is the one that renews our minds and changes us. And so when Paul says, faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass, he says, God is going to be faithful to that task in your life. He will keep after you because he's promised to conform you to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will pursue you for all your life. And when when you die or when he returns, you will have that giant step of sanctification called glorification. And you will finally be like Christ in the fact that you will be sinless. You will no longer have sin marring you. Your flesh will be redeemed. You will be given a new body. And so there might have been a tendency at this part for the Thessalonians to do what we all do when we say God is sovereign. Let's coast. Let's take our hands off. God will do it, right? And Paul says, I'm just going to give you some, some things that you need to be doing until Christ returns or until you die, just to make sure that you as a church don't start to coast on God's sovereignty. So he says, Trust that God will do his part, but recognize that God also has responsibilities for you and, and, and that you must do these things in order to be pleasing to him. And so as he comes to this section, then he really gives us four responsibilities that we must perform until Christ returns or takes us home. 
And if we do these four, if the church fulfills these four responsibilities, the church will be healthy. If we as individuals perform these things, we will be healthy. And so if we want a healthy church, then we need to do what Paul lays out for us. And so Paul says, here's four things I want you to do. Until, don't rest on God, let God's sovereignty, let him do his part in your sanctification. Here's what you need to be doing. Number one, pray for those in ministry. Pray for your leaders. Number two, maintain close fellowship. We want, I want affection among the believers. I want you to like each other and I want you to express it. Communicate the word. We need truth. We need the word of God. It needs to be central when we come together. And then fourthly, grow in grace. I want you to experience the grace of God in your life, and I want it to be a a continual thing that walks with you through life. That is what's necessary for your sanctification. And so Paul will give us these four responsibilities, and we must perform them if we are going to be a healthy church and if we are going to have a healthy spiritual walk. So Paul begins in verse 25, and he says, Brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. Now, Paul is not opposed to being prayed for. In fact, Paul continually in his work and and throughout his different books calls on people to pray for him. Paul doesn't think that he is above it. He doesn't think that he doesn't need it. He recognizes that prayer is something that is vital to his ministry, vital to to his carrying on. And Paul says, brethren, pray for us. And Paul began this book and he prays for them and he continues to pray for them. He is one that that says, I pray for you. I am the one who what is, is continually lifting you up in prayer. In fact, we just finished a prayer. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved without blame at the coming of what our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is praying for them and he is praying for their sanctification. He's praying that they would be, continue to grow. He said in chapter 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in what? Our prayers. And Paul says, I'm praying for you. Now he says, I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for me. And actually he says for us. And so he's talking about Timothy and Sylvanus the missionary team that is with him. And he says, we worked with you. We came and we gave the gospel to you. Now we're working somewhere else and you need to pray for us. Now notice this. He begins this this verse with this little word called brethren. Brethren. This is the first time in the book that he's actually started a sentence and an idea with the word brethren. Brethren. And of course, every time Paul changes patterns, we want to take a look at it and say, well, why does he start with the word brethren? These are these wonderful little nuances where we look and we say, he hasn't done this before. He's put brethren right up front. Brethren, pray for us. Why does he say brethren? Well, he says brethren because they are, he's identifying them not just as family, but as the true children of God. 
In other words, he says, I am calling on you who are true children of God, who know the true God, those who I identified back in verse 1, verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you. He says, I'm calling on you as family who are in the family of God to pray for me. And he says, there's two things that we can kind of draw from that. And, and that is simply that they, if they're going to pray, they're going to have God's ear. In other words, who else can, will God answer prayer? Will God answer? God says he answers the prayer of the righteous. He will answer their prayer. So Paul says, I appeal to you, brethren, because you're children of God to pray because I know that God will answer your prayers if you pray according to his will. And then secondly, he says, I, I pray to you and I, I call you brethren and then I command you really to pray for me because you're what? Part of the brotherhood. In other words, I, the basis of my relationship and the reason that I can command you to pray for me is because you're actually part of the brotherhood. You're part of the church you're part of those in Christ. And so this is the foundation of the call to pray. He says, we're linked together. We're in the family. And so I can, I can ask you on that basis, since we are in the same family, we are going in the same direction, I now command you to pray. Paul has already said to them in, in chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. He already had called them to be those who were in prayer. And now Paul says, just in case you're not sure what, you, what content to pray for, I'll give you some. Pray for me. Pray for me. Now again, this is, this is in the tense that says, pray as a matter of habit. Pray, start praying. Keep praying. Make this a habit of your life. So this isn't Paul saying to them, when you read this, throw up a quick prayer for me and then walk away. But he's saying, I want this to be a constant in your life. I want you to be praying for me. Well, the question becomes then, what do we pray for? Well, we recognize, first of all, that as Paul has finished this, as he's just prayed for them, we would assume that Paul would want some of the same things that he prays for others for himself. And so as we looked, as we just finished this off, this prayer in verse 23 to 20 and 24, he calls for what? Them to be sanctified entirely, preserved, complete without blame at the coming of our Lord. We would assume then that Paul is, would, would desire the same things. Pray for these things for us. We want to be sanctified. We want to be changed. We also need this for us. We want to be made Christ-like. What else can we pray for? Well, back in 2 in, in Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and, and be glorified just as you did also with, uh, with you 
and that you may be delivered from the perverse and evil men, not, for not all have faith. And the idea here is keep us from the perverse, keep us from those who seek to harm us. And Paul says, here's one of the things that you can pray for. Pray for those in ministry. Pray for those in leadership. Pray for your pastors and your elders. Pray for your missionaries that God would what? Keep them. Preserve them. Pray for their safety. There are those, remember, we are in a spiritual battle and there are those who seek to what? Harm them. And so Paul says, you can pray for their safety. Now this one I I sometimes pray for at... uh, a prayer meeting, and it would seem at times that maybe we're not praying hard enough for this one. But pray for your leader's wisdom. Pray for wisdom. They, they, need, they need wisdom as they deal in the church. They need to understand what to do, when to do it, how to apply the Word of God, how to understand the Word of God, how to deal with people. They need wisdom. The Bible is, it gives us principles, but it doesn't always tell us how to apply them, right? And so there's going to be wisdom issues. There's going to be times where you're going to have to make decisions not based upon thus saith the Lord, but an application of principles. Your leaders need wisdom. And if we're going to have a healthy flock, you're going to have to be praying that your pastors and your leaders have what? Wisdom. Thirdly, we can simply just pray for direction. We recognize that, that as leaders lead within the church, they are setting the spiritual direction of the church. They are, they are making plans for the future for the church. They're deciding what's taught next. They're deciding what things should be done, what activities that the church is involved in. And so we need to pray that the Lord is leading these men to what? To, to teach what the church needs. Now we know that the Word of God is, is, is always applicable, but there are times within the church where, there are, where, where the church needs certain teaching. And so that we want to make sure that the church is being moved in a direction that is healthy for it. And then we want to pray for spiritual strength. Simply spiritual strength. Pray that your pastors and your leaders and your missionaries are strong inside. That they are growing spiritually. That they are those who continue to arm themselves with the armor of God. Who live godly lives. No church can rise above its leadership. Okay? No church can rise above its leadership. God has given you pastors and teaching for the equipping of the saints so that you might come to the fullness of Christ Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, and it will not happen. And you cannot get past what you are taught and your leadership. So pray for them. Pray for them. And so Paul says, listen, 
Brethren, I command you, I request of you strongly that you what? Pray for us. Remember, those who are in ministry will continually have a target on their back. We are wrestling against, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And you must recognize that your leaders need prayer. God has ordained a means by which he moves. And he says one of the ways that he protects the church and the leadership within the church is through prayer. And so we must be a church that is continually in prayer for our leadership. Continually remembering the burden of the task and the spiritual battle that we are fighting. For you, Bowmanville, I am preparing your sermons on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Pray. Pray that as I'm in the office that I'm not distracted. Pray that, that the Lord would give me wisdom. Pray that, that there would be diligence. Pray for all of those things. Never remember Your pastor puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like the rest of you. He needs prayer. Pray for him. And so Paul says, here's one of your responsibilities. Pray. Pray for your leadership so that your flock will be healthy. Healthy leaders, healthy church. Well, first of all, Paul says, pray for those in ministry. And then he says this, maintain close fellowship. He says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, we went through this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So some of you are already relaxed a little bit. But for you that weren't here or or weren't listening, some of you might have your blood pressure just (laughs) rise a little bit. I'm not kissing anyone. (laughs) All right? I, I think that's what... I think that's what we said last time. But Paul says here, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. And, and there's several things that we can draw from this. First of all, greet, greet means is friendly, it's affectionate. And Paul is calling here for us to greet the brethren, to, to be affectionate, to be caring, to, to give a demonstration of that to one another. Now, we know in the first century that there was the habit of greeting one another with a kiss, whether that was on the forehead or on the cheek, and and it was done male to male, female to female. So this was not not a a romantic kiss. It's called a holy kiss. It has to be done within within Christian uh, doctrine and, and, and respectability. But they often greeted one another, and it was often done within family units and so it, or, or close friends. And so this was a way of, of showing affection it was a, a, and, and bringing someone in. Now, it certainly became perverted in the church, and, and eventually it was, it was ceased at all. So the question becomes, then, are we in disobedience by not kissing someone? Are we supposed to? Do we need to actually reinstitute this? 
and then we have to ask for greeters for the door, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and we're not sure what to think if you volunteer. So, so the idea here is, do we have to reinstitute th- this, or, or what is Paul saying here? Well, Paul's emphasis here is not on form. He is simply saying that there, is a cu- there was a culturally responsible way to greet one another. And he says, you need to greet, greet one another with an affectionate way, in a family way. This is family relationships. And so he said, as is appropriate to the relationship in the family, so should be the greeting. And he says, I want you to have affection for one another. When you come to church, this is not to be a place where we stand, I don't know, six feet apart and say to one another, hey, how are you over there? Right? The idea is we are to to do what? There's actually physical contact here in a physically appropriate way. We have now changed that in our culture to, to the handshake or the manly hug, right? Or the half hug. But, but the idea is that there is, there is to be a physical expression of affection for one another in an appropriate way as we gather together. And Paul says, this is what I'm after. I want you to, to greet one another. I want you to, be in, to have an affectionate for one another. I want you to draw them in. Now notice this. He doesn't say, greet some of the brethren. Right? He doesn't even say, here, greet the members in good standing. Right? He doesn't say, greet the ones that you really like or the ones that don't irritate you. It says, greet them all. Now, I would understand that Paul is speaking to the leadership here and that the leadership is setting the example for the rest of the church. And so the, 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 the leader should be sending the message and demonstrating to the rest. That's why we put Pastor David in the back there. <laughs> right? He's a good example. And so, but, he, but he's saying, I, I want you to greet what? all of the brethren, not just some of them, not just the ones we like. Now, I want you to just think back. You have an early church here consisting of Jews and Gentiles, slave and free. And Paul is saying to them, greet all the brethren. You have to understand the barriers that he is bringing down here. I'm going to hug a Gentile dog? Are you kidding me? And yet he says, yeah, actually, your identity is no longer Jew or Gentile. You are what? You're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your identity is in Christ. That is primary. Nothing wrong with liking your, your ethnic background. There's nothing li- wrong with loving the country that you come from. But it has to be in order. It has to be Christ first. And that sets how the order of that relationship goes. Can you imagine in the church? I'm a slave owner. And there's slaves here. And you want me to what? You want me to hug slaves? And Paul says, actually, there's no barriers in the church. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't matter age, it doesn't matter your wealth, your ethnic background, none of those things matter. 
He says, in the church, we're all brothers in Christ and we all need to be greeting one another in affection, with tenderness. Now that keeps us, we would say, from having little cliques in the church, doesn't it? From having our favorites. And again, this needs to start from the top and work its way down, but it's a responsibility ultimately for all of us. So I'm, 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 just, I'm just about done here, but I'm, I'm going to go one step farther, see if we, can get, if we can maybe get a little uncomfortable here. Do you find yourselves continually in the same circle of people every time you come to church? Do you find yourself avoiding anyone in the church because they're just a little bit difficult? Maybe not your cup of tea. Paul says, that's actually sin. (laughs) Why did you have to go there? Because the Bible does. Are you one that's contributing to cliques in the church? Are you holding yourself back as if you're too good for others or it's too much work for you? And Paul says, actually, greet them all. Greet them all. There's no barriers in the church. There's no favorites in the church. You need to be willing to greet them all. Paul says, when you get a church that does this, that's a healthy flock. That's a fun place to be. Because no one comes to church and gets ignored. No one comes to church and is ostracized. No one comes to church and feels like they're less than. Because at the bottom of the cross, at the foot of the cross, we're all equal. So Paul says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Let, let us be a church who demonstrates our affection for one another, who greets all of them, every brother, every brother. Well, Paul says, pray for, for those in ministry. Maintain close fellowship. And then he says, communicate the word. Communicate the word. He says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Now that's pretty serious language. He says, I I adjure you. And again, Paul now pulls, maybe he picked up the pen here in his writing. But Paul wants to make you sure that you know that he is coming down here with apostolic authority. And he says, we adjure you. The word adjure means to put someone under an oath or to make to swear. To place someone under a solemn charge. And he says, I am, I am putting you under a solemn charge. It is now your responsibility. And again, he's primarily speaking to the leadership here. I am, I am making it your responsibility. And 
it, it, again, he's saying it is your responsibility to do this. It's, it's continually you need to be doing this. This oath is given to you that you must do this and you must continue to do this. You must read this letter to all the brethren. You must read it. This word was used of reading the papyra out loud of a petition or reading aloud a will. It refers to copies of an edict set up in public places. And the idea here is referring to reading aloud in public reading. And Paul says, leaders, I want you to take this letter. And Paul is now saying, I adjure you in the Lord. In other words, under the authority of the Lord, you are now, you are now under responsibility. You're under oath. You must do this. You must read this letter to the brethren. Now at this point, you've, got to, you've kind of got to see that Paul is assuming here to some degree that this is what? The inspired word of God that he is writing here. Read this. I'm under, the, under oath before God, you must read this. I've now made you responsible before him to read this letter to what? All the brethren. In other words, I have just written you a book. I have just written a book that is for your lacking in your faith. And guess what? This is not for the elites. This isn't for special people. This isn't for those who we've seen in church history. It's only for those who are in the priesthood, you know, and everybody else, you couldn't, you can't, you can't hear it. You can't read it. Paul says, I want you to have it read to them. I want everyone within the church to hear the word of God. And in this, he, certainly there was those who couldn't read. There was certainly those who, who might uh, not have been able to access this themselves. We live in a time where we have Bibles in every pew. You've got four Bibles at home. This morning you probably were going any, meeny, miny, moe to pick which one you had to take. But they didn't have this. This is the original copy and it's handwritten. He couldn't even run photocopies. And so he is saying, listen, read this because they need to hear this. They need to hear the word of God. And Paul immediately centralizes the necessity of the word of God in the gathering of believers. This is what you do when you get together. You pray for your leaders. You greet one another and you what? Read the word of God. The word of God is now central to what takes place when you get together as a church. There's no substitute for it. It's the breathing, living word of God. It's the only place that you get truth. It's the only way that you know what God wants from you and what he expects from you. Which may be the same thing. But the idea here is, is it is the word of God that transforms you. It's the word of God that renews your mind. It's the word of God that fills in what's lacking in your faith. Because the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and he uses it in your life. He's... And he works together with the word of God to change you. And this is the only place you're going to find it. What's happening in the future? It's here. What happens to the dead? It's here. How should I behave? It's here. 
What do we do when we get together? It's here. And Paul immediately, again, centralizes them to the Word of God. I have just written a letter which is the Word of God and I expect you to read it to all the brethren because they all need it. It's not for special people. It's not for some people. It must go out to all of the people in the church. Which just gives me the idea that when we are skipping church, you're missing the Word. When you skip church, you miss the word. Because where is the word read? Here. Where is the word central? Here. Where is the word taught? Here. And so we need to be what? Here. If we're going to be sanctified, if we're going to be a flock that is healthy, we're going to have to be what? Here. Under the teaching of the word of God, under the hearing of the word of God. And so Paul centralizes Again, the Word of God. This is what must be done. This is not an option. This is not something that we can do once in a while, but must be done all the time. When you get together, read this letter. Certainly Paul, throughout his life, encouraged other congregations to read his Word. Colossians chapter 4, and when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea, Colossians 4, 6. And Paul is saying, I've laid out instructions in here. You need to, you need, they need to be read, they need to be heard. And that's why when you come here, we read the Word of God even during the service. That's the inerrant part. I get up, that's not so much, right? But we know that when we read the Word of God, that that's the inerrant part, Word of God and the truth, and we need to hear it. Because the hearing of the Word, as we listen to the Word, we think the thoughts of God, they transform us. As the Holy Spirit uses them in our heart. So Paul says, we need the Word of God. We need it for the building up of the body. We need it for the healthy part of the church. So Paul says, pray for us. Greet one another. He says, communicate the Word. Communicate the Word. And lastly, he says, grow in grace. Grow in grace. This is a, a request that Paul makes for them, and maybe maybe this w- will be the result if, if you do the first three, but he says this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, grace is defined as God's goodness to us. It is that unmerited, generous favor towards sinners. And when we were, and when we think of grace, we often think of conversion. We think of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. And we kind of stop there. 
we kind of think that grace is something that gets us saved and then it just kind of just idles there for the rest of our lives. But if you, if you recognize that actually grace is what keeps you and keeps you growing, you would recognize that grace is actually something that goes through all of our life. Remember, salvation is started at conversion, but it's not completed until you're glorified. And so you are kept by grace all the way through. For by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is what? A gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he has before ordained, that we should what? Walk in them. In other words, the grace extends not just to conversion, not just to beginning away from the penalty of sin, but it now influences the rest of your life as you continue on. Now again, he, he speaks here about this grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's passive. In other words, God, Christ is the source. The Lord Jesus is the source. He's the one that gives grace. He's the one that extended that grace in salvation. But he also extends grace for living. And Paul says, I want this grace not just to have been with you, but I want it to continue to extend through your life. I want it to be with you all the way. I want it to be with you personally. I want to be with each individual. I want it to be with the church through every part of your life. It is to be a lifetime partner with you that you might experience the grace of God. Titus chapter 2 says this, For by grace, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And again, I said, that's where we tend to stop. But Paul goes on, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. In other words, grace is necessary for sanctification. It is necessary for Christ-likeness, and you will not get there apart from it. God must continue to work in your life, and he must continue to grant you favor. God did not save you to keep you the way you are. He saved you to change you into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says here that we are... We are To save us, number one, he says here that we are to be what? In Titus, and I lost my place, that we are to be saved from ungodliness. Ungodliness. This refers to a person who does not revere God and thus lives by ignoring him. And he says God's grace has taught us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. To, to be one who is characterized by the world system and opposed to God. And he says, God's grace has actually come upon you to what? To keep you from that. To keep you from the ungodliness. Rather, God's grace has been given here to, so that you would live sensibly. It means living in a self-controlled matter. In other words, he came here to give you self-control so that your flesh doesn't control you. That's a fruit of the Spirit. He do, it's not something that you are continually controlled by, but you have self-control to live righteously. In other words, to live in a way 
horizontally where we are in right relationship with others, where we have a, a right relationships with one another. This is what God has intended with His grace. This is what it brings to live a godly life. To live a life that is Godward, knowing that He examines our heart, to be always looking towards God. Ultimately, it produces in us good works. And Paul says, may the grace of God be with you. In other words, the grace that started the work in you, I want it to be continually be in part of your life. I want you to experience the goodness of God and I want you to experience obedience that it comes through God's grace. I want you to be sanctified. And he says, I want that to be the experience of your life. I want grace to be in every area of your life so that you are obedient in every single area. That that gra- and recognizing that it cannot happen apart from God's grace. If it wasn't for God's favor, if it wasn't for God giving you everything that you need for life and godliness, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit empowering you to live a godly life and an obedient life, you would never, you would never be able to do it. And Paul says, I want this to be your experience. I want you to live in God's grace. I want you to live in obedience. I want you to live in, in that fellowship with God and enjoy it. Paul began this book back in chapter 1 and he said grace to you and peace and then Paul wrote a whole book in order for the Thessalonians to read this book and to understand how to live in that grace. He says, I'm writing this book, Grace and Peace to You, and I want you to experience more grace, and I want you to experience the peace of God. And he says, I'm now going to write a book that as you read it, and as you understand it, and as you obey it, you will experience the grace and the peace of God. And it's like he has done an inclusio. He goes, he, he finishes where he started. It's the grace of God that caused the peace. It's the grace of God that saved you. And now it's the grace of God that as you read this, helps you to live in a way that's obedient to him. And he says, this is my desire for you. And maybe you could go back to chapter three. What is lacking in your faith? I'm going to fill it in. My concern, your sanctification. And he says, this is what I desire, that you would walk in grace until our Lord Jesus comes. So Paul has given us, again, these four requests that he gives, these four things that we are called to do, these responsibilities that we must do until Christ return. Bowmanville. If we are going to be a healthy church, if we are going to be pleasing to God, if we are going to be individuals who are pleasing to Him, if we are going to be healthy, these must mark us. This must be who we are. 
we must be those who pray for those in ministry. Those who express fellowship to others. Those who communicate the word. And ultimately those who continue to grow and experience the grace of God. If we do that, we'll be healthy. We'll be pleasing to God. And we will be a fit bride for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of 1 Thessalonians. We thank you for all the truths that have been revealed in this book on how we are can to behave, how we are to be pleasing to you. The things that we learn that set our mind at ease because we now know how the future is, how events that to come are going to happen, what happens with, uh, with those who die. We thank you that knowledge your knowledge, your truths sets us free from anxiety. We thank you for the instructions on how we are to behave individually and as a church. And I pray this morning that we would be a church who would step up to that challenge. Each one of us would live in obedience to the truth that has been revealed and that you would make us a healthy church and that the things that we do, that we don't do, that we would do, the things that we are doing, that we would do them even more. We pray that we would do them for your glory and for your honor, I pray in your name. Amen.